Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. We're going to continue our series here in Luke, and we're going to walk through this last part of chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we look at this story that Jesus told We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. We ask that we would see our own attempts at self-justification. That we would utterly repent of them and turn to your son, Jesus. We ask, Father, that if there are any unbelievers here, that you would convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment that they would see their need for your son Jesus. That they would drop the self-justification that they currently live in and they would turn to you and be saved. We pray that you would do this work as we look at your word, that you would bless your word and that your church would hear what the Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this text we look at today, we see a great reversal. We see a rich man who goes to hell and a poor man who goes to heaven. 
And this text is a favorite among those who love the social gospel. If you know what I mean by that, it's those who like a kind of liberation theology. The idea that what the gospel is, is that Jesus came to tell the rich people that you've had your good, now you're going to pay, and the poor people, you've suffered, now you're going to be rewarded. And they love to take this text and say that that's what the whole text is about, that it's about this great reversal. And the text is about a great reversal. They're right about that. It is about a rich man who goes to hell and a poor man who goes to heaven. But it's not just about a rich man that goes to hell and a poor man that goes to heaven. In fact, not all rich men go to hell and not all poor men go to heaven in Scripture. If you look at the beginning chapters of Isaiah, there are plenty of poor there who are condemned for their laziness. Not all poor people are condemned for laziness because they're not all poor, but in that case, those poor were being condemned for their laziness. In other places in Scripture, we find rich men who were saved. Zacchaeus in Luke 19, which we'll be looking at in maybe three years. No, (laughs) Hopefully in the coming months. We'll see Zacchaeus who, who was saved as a rich man. So in order to understand what's happening in the text, because we do see a great reversal, but what's it all about? What is the Spirit communicating to his churches? What is Jesus teaching his disciples and the Pharisees? What is Luke arranging for his audience, specifically Theophilus, but then the rest of the church who would hear it? In order to understand that, we have to look at the context. We have to know what's happening in this text overall. So in order to do that, we need to look back at what's been happening If you look back to verse 1 of chapter 16, you see that Jesus has begun addressing his disciples. And as he's addressing his disciples, he goes on to teach them about um, the, the parable of the unjust steward. And I don't have time to explain it. Let me get to the point of it. The point of it is, everything you have belongs to the Lord. It all belongs to him. You're either stewarding what he's given you so that you have treasure in heaven, or you're stewarding what he's giving you so that you... Receive all your treasure here. Those are the two options. At the end of the day, whichever of those options you've chosen, demonstrate what your heart is really about. Whether you really know and love God, or you really just know and love yourself. And he shows that as he says in verse 9 of chapter 16, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. In other words, that's worldly wealth. Make friends for yourselves with that. Go out and spend it on other people because if you love God, then you're caring for other people. Make friends of yourself with that so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. In other words, what you're doing is you're spending your money, you're using what God has given you, you're stewarding it for the sake of other people. Because your desire is to honor God with what he's given you, not to honor yourself. It demonstrates that you love God when you love other people well. And so he's saying, you're taking what God has given you, you're stewarding it for them, so that you're making all of your deposits in heaven. You're building up your treasure there, so that when you come to heaven, it's as if, and this is just using imagery, it's not like this, it's as if you approach the gates of heaven and your friends come out and say thank you for what you did. Then he goes on in verse 
11 and says, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, the worldly wealth, who will entrust you to, the, the, to you the true riches? And so if you haven't been a faithful steward with this, who's going to entrust you with anything else? God's certainly not going to. He's entrusted you with very little. Even if you're very wealthy here, that is very little in the grand scheme of things. And if you've been unfaithful with that, why is he going to entrust you with more? And he goes on in verse 13. says, no servant can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, whatever you're pursuing in life, and this is really the summary of the point he's making, whatever you're pursuing in life demonstrates what you worship, what you put your time into, your energy into, spend your money on, where you put your effort, your passion, your heart. All of that is demonstrating what you're devoted to, to, what you worship. In this case, the particular idolatry is, is money, spending your money on yourself. There's all kinds of other idolatries. You can spend your life stewarding your reputation with people because your idolatry is what people think of you. You can spend your life stewarding your family because you think that what matters is having a good marriage and nice kids. You can spend your life stewarding lots of things that have little to do with the Lord. And what you spend your life stewarding demonstrates what you worship. And you can't have two masters. You're either spending your life pursuing God in Christ, or you're spending your life on something that's an idol. And then we get this response in the context. The Pharisees who were there, the religious leaders, the guys who we learn in this text were using the law to justify themselves. The Pharisees who were, notice Luke says that after he's talking about lovers of money, the Pharisees, verse 14, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those, now catch this because it's an important phrase that gets to the point of the story we're going to look at. You are those who justify yourselves before men. In other words, all of your religious acts as Pharisees, everything you do is an act of self-justification. See, you can either be justified by God, where God justifies you, declares you righteous, forgives you of your sin, or you can justify yourself before men. And you Pharisees are not those who depend on the Lord to justify you. You are those who are justifying yourself, and you're using religion to do it. You justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. He knows the truth. Now, do other men justify themselves in this context? Absolutely. Luke loves the concept of self-justification as a sin that we're constantly caught up in. He actually hammers it, if you look at Luke 15, back to the parable of the, product of, of the two sons, really. The older son comes to the father, the father comes out to him, and what happens? 
The father tells him, I've saved your brother, and verse 28 of that parable, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, I've slaved for you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. What's the difference between the two sons? One son stops self-justifying and comes back to the father and says, I need you. The other son, in the midst of seeing the father reward his brother for ceasing self-justification, that son continues in the self-justification. and says, I've done more than him. Why is he being celebrated? You've never celebrated me for all the good I've done. Or look at Luke chapter 18. Keep your hand there and go forward to Luke chapter 18. See how... Luke continues to deal with self-justification. Verse 9, he, that being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You hear that? That's self-justification. And treated others with contempt. That's what you do when you're self-justifying. You compare yourselves to others, and it always comes out favorably for you. Treat others contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men. That's quite a prayer, isn't it? Quite the self justifying prayer. You may not have ever prayed that, but you know you've thought it. I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a consistent theme in Luke And in this parable, and scholars argue over whether this is a parable or a story, the reason that they argue over whether this particular one in Luke 16, 19 31, whether this is a parable or a story, is because generally in parables, nobody's named. However, there are other reasons why they could potentially be named. All the other signs of it are, are much like a parable. I don't really know whether it's a parable or a true story. It doesn't really have a lot of bearing on the meaning. The meaning is the same. The meaning is coming back to the idea that there is this rich man whom is, in a sense, in the role of the Pharisees, as Jesus is rebuking them, who is justifying himself, and his money is the manner through which he does that. And there is a poor man who is trusting the Lord for justification. And we see their outcomes played before us, and we see what's interesting in their outcomes, the way that their hearts are continued to be demonstrated even then, particularly the heart of the rich man. And even if you're not as wealthy as this man, this story still speaks to you because we've all struggled with or are struggling with self-justification. Is that right? So let's look at the story together. Verse 19 There was a rich man who was clothed in purple, 
So you understand, he's wealthy to be clothed in purple. That kind of dye, which came from a kind of snail, was not easy to get. It was quite expensive. So it's demonstrating his, his wealth, the luxuriousness in which he lived. It's also demonstrating a kind of um, royalty. This man may not have been royal, but he may have treated himself as such. The point is he's wealthy. And he sees himself in a quite exalted fashion and wears purple to demonstrate it. And he's, he's wearing purple and he's clothed in purple and fine linen. This is, like an, this is like a guy who wears Egyptian cotton underwear, right? Okay, so you know, it's the idea here is that even his underclothes were posh. It's how wealthy he is. And, he, and, and by Egyptian cotton, I actually mean that, so you know. <laughs> That's what it's talking about here. And who feasted sumptuously every day. In other words, this man is wealthy. He sees himself potentially in some kind of majestic sense. He is well clothed all the way down to his underwear. And he's feasting sumptuously. He's eating rich foods, having a great party every day. That's how this guy lives. Now let's look at the, the poor man. And at his gate was laid. So you know this is the idea. The gate there is the idea of this ornate kind of expensive gate. To have this kind of ornate gate on the outside of your house means that this guy had some kind of castle likely. Some sort of palace. And here is this poor man who's been laid. And the idea of him being laid there is passive. He didn't go and crawl up there and lay down there and hope for some scraps. So he's a crippled man and someone has thrown him there. He's been laid at this gate. Maybe somebody else thought, maybe this rich guy will help him out. We don't know, but he's laid there. And he's laid at the gate. It's a poor man named Lazarus. Covered with sores. This is the idea that his skin is ulcerated. You're seeing ulcers on the outside of your body? It's very painful quite disgusting, and here's a poor man laden at the gate, crippled with ulcerated sores all over his body, who desired, he had this deep, intense longing to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Now, we don't really know, we know what, what exactly he's referencing here. Are these extra scraps that he might throw to the dogs? Because often they would throw the scraps to the dog. Or are these the pieces of bread, because it was quite common in that culture if you were wealthy, that you would use um, pieces, hunks of bread for like napkins, and then you would throw them off your table. Whatever it is, it's the scraps that come off this guy's tables that your dogs might normally eat, this guy is so poor, so desperate and hungry, that he would just kill to eat the scraps that fall from this guy's table. Potentially the ones, the pieces of bread he just wiped his hands off with. He just wants to eat. He's longing for some food. He's starving to death. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Think, oh, isn't that sweet? What nice dogs. In America, it's not like America where we have dogs that come jump on our laps and sit in our house and we treat them like family members, right? And we celebrate birthday parties. Some people buy their dogs birthday cakes here, right? Okay, It gets a little over the top. It isn't like that. These are scavengers. These are like Mexican dogs. You been down to Mexico? <laughs> you seen the dogs there? These are scavengers. 
These are dirty, mangy, nasty dogs. And they're coming for something to eat themselves, scavenging around, and they can't find anything to eat, so they start licking this man's open wounds, which would infect him and make him unclean. What's interesting is, as bad off as this poor man is, his name in the story is Lazarus, which means God is my help. And when we see him in this situation, we think, how can it possibly be that the Lord is your help? Go down to verse 22. The poor man died. Notice that, no burial mentioned. He just dies. Probably dragged away by dogs. No funeral. No group of people to say, what happened to poor Lazarus? Insignificant, unmentioned, unnoticed, poor, crippled, and starving. He had nothing. Not even friends. No one even recognized his death. Dishonor in life and death. It's interesting detail that comes next. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or bosom. And notice the next contrast before I deal with Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In other words, there's this stark contrast between these two men that I want to talk about before I talk about this whole concept of Abraham's bosom. There is this stark contrast. One is wearing the finest, most comfortable clothes, even his underwear is plush. He's feasting sumptuously every day. He is constantly satisfied. He has a huge palace. He sees himself in some sense royal. He has gates at his palace. Everybody knows and loves this man. He's buried and at his death probably has a huge funeral procession. The town knows who this guy is. And probably they all gathered, hundreds of them at his funeral, and said, there was a life well lived. There was a life well lived. That man was successful. Lots of people respected him. He's being honored as burial. He was wealthy. He was blessed. Clearly, God favored him. He was a Jew and a wealthy one. God favored that man. There is a life well lived. You can hear the eulogy, can't you? You've probably seen these eulogies. The poor man, on the other hand, crippled, in pain, sick, unknown, likely eaten by dogs at his death. Stark contrast between these two characters, isn't there? And we're told this interesting thing, though. At death... This man whose name is God is my help, Lazarus, is carried by the angels to Abraham's side or bosom. And we hear that, Abraham's bosom is his chest, right? And we think, what a strange place to be carried. Why would he want to be at Abraham's bosom? That seems odd to us. We need to understand the culture here to get that. We see this come up again, this idea of leaning against somebody's bosom or their chest where one man leans against another man's chest or bosom, we see that um, in the story of Jesus, the Last Supper. 
So you know this is strange to us. I mean, when Jason and I are in the office during the week or John, we don't lean on each other's bosom. We love each other, we care for each other, but that's not something we practice, right? Okay, I'm sure sometimes they'd like to lean up on, on me because they love me so, but it's not happening, right? <clears throat> what, what's, going up? what's going on here? If you understand, if you remember the, the Last Supper, and the picture of the Last Supper is as they're all around the table, and it says that, that the disciple, the beloved disciple, we're most likely in the Gospel of John, is referring to John himself, as he leans against Jesus' bosom. You guys remember that? What's happening there? At those tables, they would all actually, they'd have a fairly low table, and they'd have mats, and they would recline around the table. And when you reclined around the table, you always reclined onto your left arm. That's how you reclined. So everybody reclined to their left arm, ate with their right. So you'd recline on your left arm and sit around the table. In order for John to have leaned on Jesus' bosom, that means that John was on the right hand of Jesus because he reclines here, Jesus reclining left, and John leans over on his bosom or his chest to talk to him. In that culture, to be sitting on your right is to be in a place of honor. And here he is in intimacy and a place of honor with Jesus. That's where John is. And what the text is saying is this man whom nobody knew, who was poor and crippled and uncared for and insignificant and forgotten and licked and probably eaten by the dogs in the end, was a man who at his death closed his eyes in death to be met by God's angels, to be carried to Abraham, the father of the faith's bosom, and placed at his right hand in intimacy with him and in the place of honor. That's where this man is. This man who, who of him says, God is my help. He is a place of honor and closeness with the father of the faith. And we notice as we go on in that text that the rich man died and was buried and, and went where? And he was in Hades being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side or his bosom. That's the picture he sees. So this poor man who was unknown and insignificant and crippled and hurting and starving is being honored in heaven. And this rich man who was well-known, who lived a great life by all earthly standards, is in hell. And we see three cycles of discussion that follow from this. There's really three cycles to their conversation or, or three parts to their conversation, if you will. And all three of them demonstrate attempts at self-justification on the part of the rich man. Because the rich man is the main character in this story, really, isn't he? He goes through the whole parable. Lazarus is mentioned. But what's interesting about this is that Lazarus is named and the rich man is never named. You say, why is that? Because this is an eternal perspective. When Lazarus comes to heaven, he has a name there because God has written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, and so he is honored, and his name is known eternally in heaven. The rich man is now forgotten. 
The roles have reversed. And the rich man begins to self-justify while in hell. He's in hell self-justifying. You need to note that. This whole argument comes from a man who's in hell. Keep that in mind as we look at it. And he first, let's look at the first request or the first cycle of discussion. Verse 24, he's in hell, sees Abraham and Lazarus. Knowing, incidentally, king off to a city knows who Lazarus is. He's in hell, knows who Lazarus is. In other words, he knew that man was laying outside his gate all those years and he never cared for him. Never fed him. Walked right past him. And he called out, Father Abraham. Which is an interesting way for him to address Abraham. And, and the reason is, is that it demonstrates this guy clearly knows about the Old Testament, doesn't he? He clearly knows about the covenant that God made with Abraham. That he's the father of many nations. That God has made the promises through him. He's familiar with it. That's why he recognizes him and calls out to him, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. It's interesting about this this story, isn't it, that that he recognizes Lazarus, but he never addresses Lazarus. He almost ignores that Lazarus is a person who ought to be addressed, whom he sinned greatly against. He doesn't say, Father Abraham, can I speak to Lazarus? I have sinned against you, Lazarus. I am now personally suffering beyond anything you suffered, but I now sympathize with your suffering, and I am sorry I walked past you. I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? None of that. It's Father Abraham. Can you do me a favor? Can you send Lazarus to help me? In other words, can you continue to have him serve me? See, this man is in hell asking for Lazarus to continue to serve him. He won't even address him like a real person. He's addressing somebody else because he doesn't even see Lazarus as worthy of being addressed. Can you have him come serve me? He wants service from the one he wouldn't show any mercy to. He wants mercy to be shown to him, yet he never showed mercy to this man. Even in hell, he's still exalting his own self-importance. The response comes from Abraham. But Abraham said, child, verse 25, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now I want to deal with verse 25 first, and then kind of get to verse 26 here. Because here Abraham states the whole point of what's been driven at this point. There is a great reversal that's happened. You got yours on earth. And now, and Lazarus didn't. Now Lazarus is being rewarded and you're in anguish. This great reversal happens because, because this man was self-justifying throughout his entire life 
was spending everything God gave him on himself. And the poor man, Lazarus, was this man who was poor but understood that God was his help, that he needed the Lord. This great reversal is talked about, it's pictured here, but it's talked about in the Sermon on the Plain. Keep your hand there and look back at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, you'll see it discussed there in verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, that's Jesus, and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Woe to you if your name is exalted now and you're wealthy and full and well-consoled. Woe to you if you laugh now and party and woe to you. Blessed are you if you're poor and hungry and in need and your name is spurned on the count of the Son of Man. It's a pretty stunning reversal, isn't it? Why are you blessed? Because you will be comforted. Your name will be exalted. You will be satisfied. You will rejoice. Why is the woe to you? Because you will be in anguish. You will be hungry your name will be forgotten. See, there's a great reversal here. So why do people who live lavishly here go to hell? That seems to be what he's driving at, doesn't it? Because they spend it all on themselves. They don't see this belongs to God. They don't steward it well. Because their hearts aren't pointed at eternity, they're pointed at right now. They're not pursuing Jesus and life with him, they're pursuing this life. They're eating and drinking and marrying. They, they are, you know, they have the YOLO bracelets on. You only live once. This is their whole life right here. This is it. This is what they value. James chapter five, James deals with this a bit as well as he warns the wealthy there not to be caught up in pride and self-exaltation, self-justification, and therefore robbing those who are in need. He says this in verse one of James five, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's all of us. We are all wealthy by these standards. We all eat our next meal. We know where it's coming from. 
And if we are not believers in Jesus, if we are not those who are looking to him, who are ceasing the self-justification, who are ceasing the prideful stance of our hearts that we think all of this is for us and we're living life for us and we are not looking to Christ and being saved and thus loving the Lord and caring for others, then this is speaking right to you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Right here, that's where you've laid it up and that's where you're gonna get it. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you held back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So you've spent your life for you, so you've taken advantage of others. And their cries have reached the Lord, and you will pay. It's because they're self-justifying, and they're self in their self-justifying and lack of recognition of their complete spiritual poverty they're treating others badly. They're demonstrating what their heart is really about. That's what, why John, the apostle in, in 1 John 3, makes this comment to us that ought to catch us in verse 16 when he says, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, if you know Christ, and the love of God is in you, if you have looked to him and you're depositing your treasure there and what you're looking forward to is with him, if that's happened, then the love of God is in you and you are now wanting to lay down your lives for others just like Jesus did for you. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If you don't recognize your need for Jesus, and if you weren't saved by him, your heart is one that self-justifies, and thus what you have is spent on you. That's how it shows up. Your life is stewarded for your own joy, your own satisfaction, your own good, your own exaltation, so that people speak well of you at your funeral. And it's not spent on others because your heart is not with Christ. You don't recognize that you're a poor beggar and thus you don't help other poor beggars. One more interesting question though here in verse 26 of Luke 16, if you look there, that sticks out, it ought to anyway. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. This is Abraham speaking to him. And you ought to stop and wonder, as you're reading this, it's no surprise to me that people in hell would want to cross and be in heaven. You don't have another choice in hell. You know that, right? Once you're in hell, that's it. He's being very clear about that here. It has been appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You don't get to change your mind in hell. In fact, you won't anyway. As Lazarus, or excuse me, as the rich man's gonna demonstrate here. 
But you can understand why somebody in hell might want to cross over into heaven. But why does anybody in heaven, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, why would anyone in heaven want to go to them? Some scholars speculate, and I I think they might be right. Is it perhaps that Lazarus, this man who knows he's a poor beggar, and would want to help other poor beggars like him, is hearing this request and thinks to himself, okay, I'll go bring you some water. I'll give you the mercy you didn't show to me. And if so, what does that demonstrate about the mercy that Lazarus understands that he received? Cycle two of the self-justification. Look at the request in verse 27. And he said... Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. Here's what the rich man wants to do. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them. In other words, I need Lazarus to run a different errand for me. Can you send his ghost? Can the ghost of Lazarus please go and haunt my father's house, right? And what does he want him to do? Send him so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. In other words, send Lazarus, this is the request, send Lazarus to warn my family so they don't come to hell too. What's interesting about that is his basic self-justification begins to show here, doesn't it? See, he's essentially saying, no one warned me. I know I know who you are. But no one warned me, and no one's warned my brothers either. Can you send Lazarus to warn them? See, I didn't know I was coming here. I'd never been told about what God is doing. That's essentially his argument. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. See, God gave you the word. That's the Old Testament he's referring to there. God gave it to you, rich man, and he gave it to your family. He made you the promises, he gave you the warnings, and you didn't listen. And your brothers aren't listening either. And sending a ghost isn't going to help. Because the problem isn't that you weren't warned. But see, the rich man wants to cling to that. See, the reason I'm here in hell is because nobody really warned me. See, it's, it's something external to me. The problem is that God wasn't clear enough, that he didn't go far enough, that he wouldn't help me enough to let me know he was there and this was coming. It's not my fault. It's something outside of me. The word wasn't sufficient in some way. How do I know that? Because look at his objection. Verse 30. I'm not just making this up. It's right here. And he said, no, Father Abraham. Hear that? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. No. Here is a man in hell objecting and arguing with Abraham. No, you're not right. You're wrong, Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. See, that'll convince them. 
Father Abraham, you're telling me that I was warned and that I was made promises and that I knew all this? And that that's the same problem with my brothers, that we just wouldn't hear the warning? We wouldn't listen to the word? You're saying that it was sufficient and we just wouldn't listen? That's not the problem. The problem isn't with us. The problem's outside, outside of us. And if you just did something miraculous for them, then they would know. They need a sign. The problem is they just haven't been convinced well enough yet. The rich man's objection is that sending him some sort of ghost or resurrected person would work. Sending someone back from the dead will work because the Bible doesn't work. He's arguing the Bible wasn't sufficient for him and it isn't sufficient for his, sufficient for his brothers. God's word wasn't clear enough. Think of that. He is in hell. He's not repenting. He's still self-justifying. It's not my fault I'm here. It's yours. And it's not going to be my brother's fault when they come here either. It's going to be yours. You weren't clear enough. The problem wasn't me, and it isn't my, my brother's. The problem is outside of us. And what we can know from this is, if we know nothing else, is there won't be any repentance and admittance of it being our own fault, even in hell. Our hearts are self-justifying, and that, and that doesn't change in hell. New circumstances don't change your heart. Even when the circumstance is hell. See, we struggle to believe the problem is in our own hearts because we're naturally self-justifying. You want a test for that? Do you go through most of your life worrying that people will think too little of you? Or do you go through most of your life thinking that, worrying that people will think too much of you? Because if we're honest, I don't know too many people who worry throughout their lives that people are going to think too much of them. We generally think people will think too little of us, and that concerns us. What if they come and see my house and see how I clean or don't clean? What if they see how my children behave and think I'm not a good parent? What if they see that I'm not as smart as maybe they thought? What if I don't do this well enough and they think this about me? What if I don't speak properly in this situation and they, think, they don't think well about me? What if I don't, what if I, and we go through life, go through life worried that people think too little of us. What does that say about our hearts? We're naturally self-exalting people, aren't we? We want people to make much of us. We aren't like John the Baptist who says, he must become greater and I must become less. Let's face it, we go to a funeral, if you've ever been there, you've probably thought it, at a funeral with lots and lots of people where everybody's up speaking so well of a person and you think, man, I hope it's like this when I die. Especially you feel that way when you go to a funeral and there's two or three people standing around and no one knows who this person is and no one cares that they're dead. And you think, man, I don't want that kind of funeral. I want that other kind of funeral. I don't want people to think too little of me. I want them to make much of me. Because we think we have to strive in this life to find a way to justify ourselves. We all struggle with it. Some of us are given over to it completely. If you're given over to it completely, you're an unbeliever. 
We don't want to believe the problem is internal, internal, a matter of the heart. Thus we become like the rich man who thinks his brothers need more than the word. You want another test for it? Whether you're self-justifying, here's a good test. Do you believe that God's word is sufficient for you and your loved ones? Or do you think that God has not made himself sufficiently clear? Or perhaps God needs to do more to prove your need. So for example, some in the charismatic world today would look for signs just like the Jews did here. I need God to do a miracle or else I'm not going to believe he's real. The Bible isn't clear enough for me. It's not sufficient. Non-charismatic people, they're just looking for some kind of sense of God's presence. I want to feel like he's present, not like he's distant, if I don't have the right feeling attached to it. The word isn't sufficient. I can open this up and God rends the heavens and speaks to me in his word, but if I don't hear something myself apart from this, then he must not be there. Prosperity preachers and their followers look for material blessings. Unless God is giving me stuff, maybe he's not there. My life is going badly. God must not be there. They're the exact opposite of Lazarus who understood God was his help while he was poor and crippled and insignificant and uncared for. Church growth guys looked (laughs) comically look for constant change according to what it requires to remain relevant. See, the problem is, is all those people out there don't come in here because our band isn't cool enough, our lighting isn't cool enough, our pastor isn't cool enough. If we could just fix all that and we could present ourselves just right to the world out there, they would clamor for Jesus because this isn't sufficient. Because the problem isn't really their hearts. The problem is is that we failed to present ourselves well up to them. God's message or God's messengers aren't enough. We need something else. Postmodern liberals look for a perfect church where no one says anything that offends another person. If there'd just be a church where people aren't sinners, then I'd become a Christian. Missed the whole point there, didn't you? Intellectuals look for the airtight argument. God could just present me an argument that's airtight. In popular evangelical revivalism, we tend to uh, imagine that if someone important enough or famous enough or popular enough believes that that'll win the day. Man, you know what? I'm going to take my friend to that because that guy is a football quarterback. He is a star. Everybody knows him. If he starts telling his testimony, I know he only became a believer two days ago, but when he preaches, now people are going to become saved. Because he's popular. And clearly, God chose what is popular in the world and wealthy in the world and well-known in the world and wise in the world Right to shame the weak and the poor and the insignificant. Is, is that what he said in First Corinthians? No, it's, not, it's opposite, isn't it? But all those ideas assume that the problem is out there rather than the problem being in here. The problem is in God's messenger. The problem is in God's message, but it's never in my own heart. And then we hear Jesus say, God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. See, look at Abraham's response, verse 31. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, 
Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So now you have on the, in the, on the tongue of Abraham a foretelling of what's coming in Christ. They're not even going to believe if Jesus raises from the dead if they don't believe the word of God. They're going to see him raise from the dead and not believe. You know what's amazing about that is in John chapter 11, John chapter 11 Jesus raises another Lazarus, the, sister, the brother of, of Mary and Martha. Those are his sisters. He's well-to-do, so he's a different guy than this, this Lazarus. But he dies. Jesus resuscitates him. And he raises and comes out of the tomb and walks out of the tomb. And in the passage, what's stunning is that some people believe because they already would have believed God's word. And other people do what? They think, you know what? Jesus is raising the dead. We better plot to kill him. What does that tell you about their hearts? They plot to kill Jesus and Lazarus. See, it doesn't matter. God can do all the miracles in the world. And you're still not going to believe because the problem isn't out there. The problem's in here. Unbelievers, you have a heart problem, and Jesus needs to save you and give you life. And Christianity teaches you to abandon this life for the life to come. If you live this life for this life and you attempt to self-justify the rest of your life, you will go to hell where there will be no repentance or hope. It doesn't give me pleasure to tell you that. I'm just a poor beggar offering another poor beggar bread. That's it. Believers, we ought to weep over a city full of people who are self-justifying and who will go to hell and be in eternal anguish. We have to remember that we're saved because God helped bankrupt people like us. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that you would apply your word to our hearts, that your spirit would work so that our hearts would be made soft and alive to your word, that we would love your word, trust your word, see in it a sufficient set of promises and warnings to us. We pray for those who don't believe that you, your spirit would give them new life, that you would take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that you would give them new birth so that they would see the goodness of your word they would see their need for Jesus. They would turn to you in repentance and faith and believe. And we pray, Father, as well, for our own hearts, those of us who are believers who, who's, because we're believers doesn't mean our hearts don't tend to run back to self-justification. We pray that you would begin to root that self-justification out of us, that we would recognize that we are poor beggars and that we are to go out and offer other poor beggars bread. That our significance here won't matter to us. That our comfort here won't matter to us. That, that everything that seems good to us now won't matter to us. What will matter to us is your son and being with him eternally. To be at his right side and to be leaning against his bosom. To be honored with him in heaven. The great gift we don't deserve 
but that you graciously gave us in your son Jesus. Pray that you would do that work in us, that we would trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.